Welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. So uh, this would never happen at your house or my house or, or pretty much any house these days. And so it might be a little bit hard to relate to this story right, like, right from the beginning. Because you see, at your house, when you invite someone over for dinner, there is like literally no chance that some random person is going to burst through your front door, run up to your guest, and begin to cry and kiss your guest's feet. I mean, like that's never going to happen. And if by some bizarre sequence of events that did happen, uh, your first thought wouldn't be, hmm, I wonder if he knows what kind of woman is kissing his feet. No, your first thought would be, somebody call 911. And so to really feel what Jesus is saying to us in this parable, we have to start by kind of shedding off the fact that this would never happen here. We have to transport ourselves to some different time or different culture in which something like this would happen. Which, we wouldn't have to go too far to do that, by the way. All you need to do is imagine a small village somewhere where not much happens. Someplace like Lodi, for example. And so the arrival of anybody new would draw the attention of everyone, let alone, you know, if it was a dignitary or even, as in Jesus' case, like the most famous, interesting, influential man of the world. Everyone would know that Jesus was there. Everyone would know that Jesus was eating at this guy's house because... This guy would be so proud of the fact that Jesus was eating at his house that he himself would have told everybody, Hey, everybody, guess what? Jesus is eating at my... No, you can't come to eat, but feel free to come by and gaze at us as we do. And so the scene we should be imagining here is not a quiet, formal dining room with classical dinner music playing in the background and the quiet, civilized sound of silverware clicking on fine china as you daintily cut your peas one by one. Rather, we should imagine dinner being held out in the front lawn with everyone who passes by being able to see what's happening and most likely standing there and staring at the people eating which is something that Jesus, you know, happened to Jesus all the time. You read through the Gospels, the stories that we have of his life, you hear all the time people coming and gathering around whatever house Jesus was eating at and staring at him. He had been invited by a Pharisee named Simon, who was probably a bigwig in town. My guess is that this guy had invited Jesus over to check him out. Size him up. See if he really was all that people, you know, said that he was. This was a dinner 
interview. You know, kind of like the, you, when you're interviewing for a job and you go to the company and they t- part of the interview, they take you out for lunch and you're thinking to yourself, wow, isn't this nice? They're going to buy me lunch. And then you order a hamburger and fries and everybody else orders like salmon herb crusted laying on a bed of couscous. And you think to yourself, maybe I shouldn't order stuff that I eat with my hands for a job. Anyway, that's another story for another time. But, you know, it's like one of those. Jesus here is being evaluated. And in the middle of all that, a woman bursts through the crowd, comes up to Jesus as he's reclining at the table. Here you should imagine a table probably maybe 12 inches off the ground, kind of like a coffee table, and he's reclining there eating, and she comes up to him and starts kissing his feet, washing them with her tears, and then perfuming them with a very, very expensive perfume. And again, the weirdest part of all that is that nobody thought that that was the weirdest part. The people, the, 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 the part that people thought was weird about this whole thing was that the woman doing the washing was someone who had, quote-unquote, lived a sinful life in that town. Meaning, everyone knew who she was and what she had done. And what she had done was the thing that identified her to everyone else in the community. She was the woman that had done that. Some of you know what that feels like. Some of you know what it feels like to go through life and the people around you, all they see is what you have done. What has gone wrong in your life? And it's amazing the identity-shaping power that that perspective has. Not, Not just for the ones who have been labeled as those living a sinful life. But it also shapes the identity of those who do the labeling. You see, while on the one hand, we might be forever known as the ones who did the things that we, you know, did. The other people become now identified as the people who didn't do those things. This woman had been pegged, identified, pigeonholed into being known as the woman who lived a sinful life. Which by extension meant that the Pharisee guy and with him probably everyone else in town were now pegged, identified, and pigeonholed as those who had not lived a sinful life. And which one of those labels turns out to be the greater prison? Well, that that remains to be seen. But for now, everybody in town knew who this woman was, except, apparently, Jesus. He's not from around here. He's from out of town. 
which is the only reasonable explanation as to why he would possibly be letting this woman touch him. He must not know who she was and what she had done. Because if he knew, if he knew, certainly, certainly he would feel about her the same way the rest of us do. Certainly he would not be letting her even touch his feet, let alone kissing his feet. You see, we have to realize here that the shock that people are experiencing at watching this woman touch Jesus' feet is the same level of shock that you and I would have if we were watching Jesus walk into a strip joint. So here, believe it or not, here they're actually giving Jesus the benefit of the doubt. Like, they're feeling sorry for him here. Oh, this poor out-of-towner doesn't know the kind of woman who's touching him. Oh, I feel so bad for him. Should we tell him? No, we'll, we'll watch this play out first. Now, of course, the benefit of the doubt, it cuts both ways for Jesus here. You see, because if he doesn't know who this woman is, well then, that kind of hurts his reputation as this, you know, this, this spiritual prophet, seer guy. Which is, of course, where Simon's thoughts go directly. Verse 39 says, If this man were a prophet, he would know. He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she is a sinner. And with that, as far as Simon is concerned, the interview is over. In an instant, Simon has now evaluated the situation and the people in it. He has weighed and measured them. And once again, as far as he is concerned, he has now come out on top. He already knew that he was not like this woman who had lived a sinful life. But along with that, he has now exposed this Jesus guy who is supposed to be some sort of prophet, but obviously... Obviously, he's not. Check, please. We are done here. The interview is over. Which I love how, I love how Luke opens up the next phrase here. Luke writes, and Jesus answers him. Jesus answered him? But you see, Simon hadn't said anything, at least not out loud. Verse 39, verse 39 tells us that Simon made the, if this man were a prophet comment, to himself. Jesus must have known what he was thinking. And I wonder, I wonder if he knew what Simon was thinking because of his, you know, supernatural read your mind powers that Jesus had. Or if it was simply that Simon's body language had shifted so that Jesus and really anybody else who happened to be watching 
could clearly read the disdain and contempt that Simon had for Jesus and this woman. Because you see, when we feel like we are better than others, it shows in how we carry ourselves. It shows in our posture, in our faces, in our eyes. You don't have to have supernatural mind-reading powers to tell. But either way, Jesus answers Simon's condescending evaluation of him with the parable. Yes, yes, we're finally getting to the imaginary garden with the real toad that this whole sermon was supposed to be out in the first place. Verse 40. Simon, I have something to tell you. Jesus is setting this poor guy up and he doesn't even realize it. Tell me, teacher. What do you have to say? Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one will love him more? I read an article the other day where the author was considering the astronomical wealth of a particular celebrity. Uh, And she started her article by referring to herself as someone with a negative six-figure net worth. Of course, the author is referring to the amount of debt that she carries, you know, debt that was in the six figures. And the line struck me so much that I, I like, never read the article. I just, I, that, you know, she, she had me at that two lines. I don't know if that was her intention or not, but uh, it was just, wow. It, you know, it got me to thinking, that's me, Right? In fact, when I thought about it, I realized that when I add everything up, I owe an astronomical figure and an astronomical ridiculous amount of money that I will not pay back in my lifetime. But you know the weirdest thing about this enormous debt that I carry? It doesn't bother me. Like most days, I don't even think about the fact that I have this astronomical six-figure debt hanging over my head. You see, I have structured my life and my debt so that I can manage it. So well that most days I forget that it's even there. You know, so much that I look, when I read about the problem of debt in our society, I think to myself, wow, Those poor people who owe all that money, I wonder how they manage. Because there are people for whom their debt is unmanageable. It consumes their life. In fact, 522,000 people declared bankruptcy in our country last year. Meaning they got to the point where they could no longer keep their debt at bay. It overran their finances. It overran their life. Then, of course, there is the other group of people in society. You know, 
hardcore Dave Ramsey types that go through life saying, ooh, debt, bad, must, rid, debt, avoid, all costs, debt, bad, ooh. These are the folks that will have a conniption if they hear somebody say that it is impossible to live in this day and age without debt. It's actually quite fun to watch. You should try it sometime. If you know one of these folks, invite them over for dinner and suggest to them, actually even better, have one of your young adult children suggest to them, oh, wow, you know, these days it is impossible to live without debt. And they're like, Gah! they will, the face will melt like, a, you know, the, the Raiders of the Lost Art thing. This is one, go home. You should do that for, for lunch today. These folks are disciplined and careful and rigorous. They've eliminated all debt from their life. And I think about these three categories of people. The blissfully indebted, or the hopelessly indebted, or the diligently debt-averse people. And I put them into Jesus' story. Let's say, just for fun, that tomorrow... The bank people and all the people in the power, they get together and uh, said, you know what? Never mind. Just, just, just forget it. You, you all, you're, don't, you don't have to pay anything back evermore. Like, it's all zeroed out. It's gone. You The money you owe is completely forgiven. It's all good. Now, you go through these categories of people and ask yourself, what would these folks feel at that news? Well, first off, I can imagine the diligently debt-averse folks these people might be pretty upset. I can hear them saying, wait a minute. I've been busting my tail, cutting corners, working three jobs to pay off all my debt. I don't go to Disneyland with my family. I drive ratty old cars that I bought with cash. I haven't upgraded my phone since the iPhone 3 was out. And even then I bought it refurbished. And now you say that I I didn't have to do all that? I did all that for nothing? Or the, the blissfully indebted people, to be honest, if someone canceled all debt, we might not even notice. I mean, according to us, our debt wasn't that bad anyway. We learned to live with it. It's not a big deal. But then... And I imagine that family drowning in bills, facing the reality of being kicked out of their home, having their car repossessed. Family hasn't been able to answer the phone or go outside because of all their creditors hounding them, hounding their children, facing the stigma of being one of those people who can't manage their life. To them, Ah, to them, the news that debt has been canceled would be met with this overwhelming, overflowing sense of relief, of joy, 
of gratitude. They would barely be able to put words to it. This group, I can't imagine running through the streets trying to figure out who was the whose idea was this? Who is the person responsible? So they can find him, look him in the eye, say thank you. Thank you. Which of them will love him more? Simon replied, Well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You judge correctly. Jesus said. Now, of course, Jesus isn't talking about money. He's not really talking about denarii. But just in case some folks at the dinner might have kind of missed the point, he goes on to explain. Jesus says, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me water for my feet. This woman... She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. Whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. You see, somewhere, somehow, this woman had gotten the message that because of Jesus, her debt, her sins, the violence that she had done to Shalom through her actions and attitudes, her debt that she owed to God and to her community, had been forgiven. She recognized that Jesus was the guy that had made all that happen. And so her gratitude was instinctive. It was spontaneous. It was authentic. I mean, just think of of like the embrace that a parent would give the surgeon to just save their child's life. Or the big hug that a kid would give a firefighter emerging from the smoky building carrying the kid's favorite stuffed toy. It's the natural outpouring of gratitude. You don't have to orchestrate this stuff. You don't have to make sure that you have the right song queued up or create the right moment. You don't have to theologize or educate or train this kind of expression. No, this is, this is instinctive from the person who recognizes how much they have been forgiven. Very important here. It's not that the forgiveness had come because she was kissing Jesus' feet. It's not that her love for Jesus had worn Jesus down and said, fine, 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 you're forgiven. That's not what this is about. The forgiveness precedes the expression. It precedes the worship. This woman already knew Jesus. 
This woman had already accepted forgiveness from him. She was living in the freedom of his forgiveness. It didn't matter to her that everyone there was shocked and repulsed by her. It didn't hinder her the fact that people were judging and looking down on her. She didn't have to worry about the crowd of people there who didn't forgive her. Her attention was entirely focused on the one person who already had. But not Simon. Not Simon. No, Simon. Simon's stuck. He's stuck. His mind is busy calculating, evaluating, establishing, and upholding this pecking order that was completely designed to make sure that in all the calculations, he always came out on top. His entire way of life depended on him being better than others, on him not having lived a sinful life. It all depended on him being the guy that owed 50, not 500. So he he didn't live in forgiveness. He couldn't. He was stuck in a prison of judgment, which is what happens when we get caught up in the, well, at least I'm not as bad as them game. We're so afraid of getting caught, so afraid of, of being rejected and looked down on that we simply convince ourselves along the way that we haven't done anything wrong. And if by some accident of circumstance we did, it definitely wasn't my fault. It's the prison of the good kid. I was a good kid. I loved being a good kid. My parents liked me. My parents would say nice things about me to other parents. Other parents would comment, oh, he is a good kid. I wish my kid was like your kid. I didn't have to deal with consequences because I was a good kid. But somewhere along the way, all those people that liked me, I began to believe that they only liked me because I was the good kid. That God only liked me because I was a good kid. And so now I had to keep being a good kid, not out of joy or out of this sense of I am glorifying God, but out of fear. If they ever find out, if I let my guard down, if I take one day off from being a good kid, they won't like me anymore. God won't like me anymore. Because you see, the little secret that all good, keep, all good kids keep from the rest of the world is that we're not really good. Oh, you'll never find out because, you see, we're too good at being good. But it's an awful lot of work. But it's work to work that we're committed to, by golly, because somewhere along the line, we convinced ourselves that it was better to be the guy that only owes 50. Not to be one of those people that owe 500. 
So it turns out that the sinner box and the not sinner box turns out that the not sinner box is the much worser prison. Because sinners, sinners can be forgiven. Sinners can get saved. Sinners get to meet Jesus for who he really is. But not sinners don't. As Flannery O'Connor comments in one of her short stories, the surest way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. All the parents are freaking out, putting earmuffs on their kids, going, wait, 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 what are you saying? That I should go and start sinning now so that I can learn to love Jesus more? thought this was church. Well, maybe. I mean, if that's what it takes. Of course, another option is to simply spend a moment's reflection to acknowledge, to realize, to this thing that the Bible calls confess that you and I we've already been living a sinful life in this town. See the point of Jesus' parable of the two debtors wasn't to tell Simon that he should be crying and kissing and bathing Jesus' feet in sweet perfume. This is not a lesson on worship. The lesson, the challenge, the invitation to us isn't that we should work really hard at getting really, really emotional about Jesus. That'd just be weird. It's weird to show love and gratitude when we feel neither love nor gratitude. No, the invitation to Simon and the invitation to us in this parable of the two debtors Be the one who realizes he owes 500 denarii. Be the one that realizes that you have been forgiven much. Not in theory, but really. You owed a debt that you were never going to pay. You have led a sinful life in this town. Because you see, when we get there, when we come to that place, There we can realize Jesus has forgiven all of that stuff. We don't have to run from it anymore. We don't have to blame it on other people. We don't have to pretend that it really wasn't that bad. We don't have to carry the guilt and try to pay it back for the rest of eternity. Instead, we can be free. Jesus said to the woman, and to us, if we want to hear it, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Would you pray with me? And as you bow your heads, I just invite you to scroll through the reality of your life. That you, would, that you would cut through the layers of protection that you have built. That you would dig down to that one thing. 
that one thing that you have tried so hard to forget, the one thing that you work so hard to keep hidden, that you work so hard to make up for. It's a thing that keeps you looking over your shoulder, that it, the thing that keeps you judging others. It's the thing that keeps you feeling judged. I invite you to bring it up to the surface. Bring it before Jesus. Like the real Jesus. Show him the real sin. And as you do hear him say, the words you are forgiven like really you are forgiven you are forgiven so Jesus we pray that you would help us to accept your forgiveness Jesus, help us to live in grace. We acknowledge that we spend so much time trying to convince ourselves, convince other people, trying to convince you that we don't need as much grace as other people. Maybe not any grace. But, Jesus, we recognize that as a lie. We recognize that as our pride. We recognize that as our reluctance to accept forgiveness. And so we do today. Our feeble strength accept forgiveness from you for the things that we have done. We also accept your forgiveness for the things that other people have done against us. Because we don't want to live in the prison of judgment anymore. We want to be free. We recognize we're going to have to accept your forgiveness again tomorrow and the next day and on and on throughout eternity. But for today, we start. We start saying yes. I receive your forgiveness for me. In Jesus' name, amen.